Emergency services. Please, you gotta help me. There's this weird guy. Ma'am. Please. Ma'am, call us when you're dead. What the fuck? Welcome back, callers, to another episode of Call Us When You're Dead. I'm Keith. And I'm Ryan. Thank you so much for coming back from your vacation. Oh, man, it feels good to be back. It is so good to have you back. <laughs> Thank you again to Liz for helping us last week with the episode. I don't think the callers understand. Sometimes, like, life just kind of happens to one of us, and there are people that have been so kind to just volunteer and come in and help us be able to record. It's happened for you. It's happened for me. You know, so it's nice to have that there. Right. Definitely love the support. So, did you have a good time on your vacation? I did. And I know my dad's going to be listening, so very special thank you for coming with me and making a wonderful vacation. Yeah, I mean, it was a great way for you and your dad to get away and just have father-son bonding time together. And I realized I don't like being away from you for multiple days in a row. It was the first time in our relationship that you and I had ever been not able to see each other for multiple days. And I was good for the first few days. And then those last <laughs> few days when I started working on this case, I realized I don't like being in this house alone, especially when I'm working on things that deal with demons. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I had the same thing of the separation anxiety from you, you know, kind of like how animals experience separation anxiety. Oh, yeah. And little girls were so happy when you got home. Oh, man. Uh, we do want to let everybody know that we are going to be starting our next season next week. Season five. Yeah, I mean, we are officially on to season five. And I know, like I said last week, we are cutting the season short. However, it just goes back to what I said last week again. We we don't do cases that deal with infants. And yeah. I, I can't bring myself to do that. And Ryan doesn't want to see me go through that. I don't want to see Ryan go through that. Right. So we're going to... We're going to move forward and enjoy what little bit of a season this one was. But we are also past the spooky season and it's getting closer to Christmas time. And so it's just kind of time to move on from all that. Right, right. But you know what isn't time to move on from? What's that? Shout out. Shout out. Shout out. So we have Ashley S. Jennifer S. And Aisha M. Thank you guys so much for being callers. As we close this chapter on season four of Call Us When You're Dead, The Devil Made Me Do It, we have decided what better case to cover than the actual first case that caused the world to stand silent as Satan himself is put on trial for the first time in United States history. That's right, callers, we are talking about the famous case of Arnie Johnson. As many of you callers may know, this case was not only put into public spotlight in November 1st, 1981, but it again was put back into the public when The Conjuring made it into a movie in 2021. So with all that said, let's jump into our trusty time machine for the last time of this season and go back to Connecticut in the summer of 1980. Please keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the time machine at all times. Call us when you're dead cannot be responsible for any lost limbs. This is where we're going to find... An 11-year-old David Glatzel, his mother Judy, along with his 25-year-old sister Deborah, cleaning a rental property they had just bought. As David is upstairs, he feels a person standing behind him. When he turns around to see a man who appears to be burnt, he pushes little David to the ground, saying to David, I will bring harm if you move into this house. 
Yeah, so I'd be like, fuck that shit. Yeah, so it, it's weird because they they just, like, they're literally going to each room at this point. Deborah has kind of told the kids, like, hey, go clean up different rooms because it is a rental property. It was not clean prior to that time. So she just wants them to go clean up the rooms and go, get everything Go hang ready. out with a scary burnt man. Right, right. And David feel, you know, like, have you ever had somebody just standing behind you and you're like, God, why is that person watching me? Right. Yeah, you have you have that sense of someone is watching you and then you, like, make eye contact and it's like, motherfucker, they were watching me. Yeah. And so David has that same feeling and he turns around and that's where he sees this full-on man looking burnt and pushes David like, he physically just pushes David down, and he was like, if you move in, I'm going to kill you and your family. If I'm 11 years old and I see that, I'm freaking the fuck out. Right, right. I'm, I'm done at that point. Yep, yep. However, for days, David keeps seeing the old man. He would change shape from the burnt man to an animal with hooves and horns. Each time David has an encounter with a man, he threatens David, saying he will end up stealing his soul. That is creepy in itself. Like, I'm imagining, like, a goat or a ram. Yeah, and the way that David explains it is that it did look a lot like a ram that was just kind of chilling. That's scary in itself, just a ram talking to me. Right. He would wake up and, like, the ram would be there, or he would, like, turn a corner, and it would be, like, the man, and he would, like, try to run from it, and, like, all of a sudden, now it's the ram in front of him. It's weird. So, while staying in the rental, David starts to have night terrors. Bruises and scratch marks have started to form on his body in places he wouldn't have been able to reach on his own. You know, if you just go to reach to, like, scratch your back, there's just certain places you're not getting. And David starts to have them in places where he just, you wouldn't be able to reach. And, you know, it's just weird at that point for him. And he can't explain it. And the night terror, like, I've had a night terror before. I don't know if callers have had, but they're terrifying. That literally the name and night terror it is just terrifying. <laughs> you see things you can't wake up from, but like you know you're not awake, but you also know you're not sleeping. It's a very weird feeling. Right, right. His mother, Judy, has also started to take notice of David's inability to sleep and that his simple attitude around the house has been changing ever since David had told her about the burnt man. At first, she just thought it was simply a child with an overactive imagination. Puberty hitting hard. Right. <laughs> you know, he's they're in a new home. Right. You know, and so maybe he is nervous about being in a new home. However, David has started walking around the house quoting Bible verses in somebody else's voice and even doing so in Latin. When confronted about it, he starts to growl at family members. And that, callers, is a red flag like no other. No shit, that's a red flag. (laughs) If my kid, my 11-year-old, is talking to me in Latin, there ain't no way that that boy knew Latin. He, right. That is a hard language to understand. There are grown adults today that still don't understand the language of Latin. An 11 year old definitely is not getting it. Right. If he starts talking to me in Latin, and then when I'm like, oh, buddy, why are you doing that? And now you're like growling at me like a dog or like making hissing sounds, somebody's going outside to sleep. Right. Throw him in the doghouse. You want to growl like a dog? You sleep outside. Right. In you want to sleep outside like a dog. So, Judy, of course, is terrified that something horrible is happening to her son. Like any mom would be. Right. Looking for some sort of answers, Judy takes David to a local counselor who would end up charging her $75 a person or about $271 in today's money. Now, callers, that was per person, not per session. Yeah, which I found so weird was that the person wanted, the counselor wanted $75 a person. 
because I've never heard of that before. And it almost makes me feel like maybe they're, what is that word? Where they're just, they're fake right. charlatan. Like maybe they were a charlatan and not an actual counselor like Judy believes they are. Right. This counselor definitely seems like trying to gouge some money because right. at the end of the sessions at one point, he would end up saying, I want to see the whole family next time you come in. And at $75 a, a pop. Right. And I'm not, I want to clarify too. I don't know if Judy is married when I looked it up, they, there was never a mention of her husband. So I'm not sure if she's married or if there's a divorce that's happening. Kind of leaning towards maybe a divorce. Right. But you do know there's Judy and three kids. Right. So that's, you know, over $1,000 in today's money for a session. Right. You know, and then $300, their, their money in the 1980s. Right. And that's just, a, that's a lot of money. It's money that you don't have. Right. And when Judy does ask the counselor about why... He just dismisses her completely, which is weird, you know, like because yeah, he didn't have a good answer, right? No, I think it was because he just wanted that money. Mm-hmm. Now, to top it all off, the rest of the family is starting to have a hard time sleeping. Judy and Deborah both keep hearing an odd sound coming from the attic. Arnie Johnson, who is now living with the Gladsell family, tells them he will go up there and check. However, he doesn't find anything, but the sounds continue to persist. So Arnie decides he'll just live in the attic. Maybe an animal is coming in at night and leaving or hiding when the family is awake. Unfortunately, the sounds just keep going on. And when they do, Arnie gets up looking around the room to where he can hear hear the sound coming from, but he just doesn't find anything. All right, Arnie, let's have a talk right away. You have weird noises coming from somewhere. Not explainable. There's weird shit going on in the house. Right. Don't say, hey, I'll go sleep there. Okay, but to his defense, because I think Arnie was kind of like with Judy on this, where he thinks David is just acting out in a weird manner because of them moving. Because Arnie and David are close, even though Arnie is Deborah's boyfriend. I think Arnie just thinks like, well, you know, we did just get this rental property. It kind of made it sound like it was trashed. It just wasn't well maintained when Judy got it. And so I think Arnie's like, well, maybe there is something getting in. You know, maybe a raccoon is getting in upstairs. Maybe it's a squirrel and it just, it comes in at night because it's warmer in the house at night than outside. And so I'll catch it. But he isn't able to find it. Something's fishy's going on. Right. Or Arnie's just being a white girl looking for the sound and tells her friends, I'll be right back. (laughs) David has started getting worse. And his mother, Judy, has has started to come to the end of her rope, just not knowing what to do. Right. If the psychologist is unable to help, maybe someone else can. So she tries to call the local Catholic church. She tells the father all of the things that have been going on, from the sounds in the attic to each issue going on with David. She asks if anyone would be able to come out and visit her home, even if it is just to put a blessing on the house. His answer is a simple no before hanging up. Could you imagine you've gone to a psychologist and they, they're they gouging you for money. You've now, you're like, okay, well, maybe it's something else. Like you have a faith and you're like, well, maybe it's something else. Maybe it can be cured by this. So you call the church, you know, the Catholic church to get involved. And they're just like, no. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not the religious one. Right. But I, I would like to think I, when I view churches, Christian, Catholic, whatever churches, if someone's saying help, 
And you say no? I feel like shame on you, church. Yeah, like I was quite surprised when I saw that the first one was just like, nope, and hung up on her. Right, even if the church doesn't buy it, I feel like... Just go out and investigate, because what's, what's the worst it, you're going to do, you know? right? And then recruit them to start coming to your church. Yeah. <laughs> Irritated and feeling like she is quickly running out of options, Judy calls a different Catholic church from across town. She again repeats the same story to the father, and he agrees. Good church. Right. Yet he tells Judy that he will only be able to perform a blessing on the home, that if she wanted the church to become more involved with anything that's going on with David, he will have to see a psychologist and have their findings submitted to the church before they would be able to do anything further with him. I mean, and that's fair. Which is almost a callback to our last episode with Annalise. Because of the things that happened with Annalise, this is one of the repercussions from the Catholic Church. Sure, yep. Until then, the father comes out and examines the home, placing a blessing on everything. The house, for a few weeks, has gone back to normal. David is no longer waking up from night terrors, no new marks have formed on his body, and he isn't walking around quoting the Bible in a strange voice anymore. Even the sounds in the attic have stopped. So it sounded like it was a... A good blessing. Like, it sounds right. like it's worked for her. Or a temporary fix, anyway. Yeah, because, however, just as soon as they have stopped, everything has starts back up again. Now the attacks on David are coming daily. Judy worries when she turns a corner in her own ma- home that the burnt man is going to show up because he has now started to show himself to the whole family. She just needs someone, anyone, willing to listen and bring peace to her once loving family. So that's kind of good that the whole family is now seeing the burnt man. So they're not like, oh, this little kid's a fucking cuckoo. Right. Judy now at this point is like, David is not crazy. Deborah is like, David is not crazy. Arnie has even said, David is not crazy. Like, we, we have all ran into this weird man that looks like he's burnt in this flannel shirt just standing there and like... Judy at one point explains that she was, she went around a corner and the man was just standing at the end of a hallway and she dropped the clothes that she had and she was like, what are you doing? And he just disappeared. Jeez. Yeah. So then the idea strikes her. If a psychologist is unable to listen or help David and the church wants nothing to do with her family, maybe, just maybe, a paranormal investigator will. To which Judy has the perfect ones in mind, the Warrens. Remember them? Yeah. 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 She calls them and for the third time finds herself repeating to another stranger of all the terrors and horrible things going on. Yeah. We'll we'll talk about it a little bit later on, but she doesn't change anything that she tells the first father or the second father or even the Warrens when they show up. Right. You know, when she contacts them, that story is very consistent. And Deborah attests to that and so do other family members later on that their mom never changed her story. And that, I feel, is very important. Mm-hmm. It shows more truthfulness to it. And I'm sure there's certain details that she may have forgot or remembered later on. Right. You know, but at the time, she she wasn't like, oh, the windows blew open and then told somebody else, there's, there's grass growing from the ground <laughs> into my house. You know, there right. wasn't drastic changes. It was small things that may have gotten changed over time from talking to each person, but nothing like crazy. Ed and Lorraine Warren both agreed to at least look at her home. Judy had sounded truthful enough, and maybe there is something they can do for the whole family, even if it is just to explain a natural occurrence that's happening. They have found that ever since their time in Amityville, everyone has started to believe a demon was living in their home, 
when it was simply just a drafty house. The same could be for the Glatzel family. For sure. Right. And I like that the Warrens took this approach when when they went to go investigate and they had investigated other homes of, we're going to try to explain the natural phenomenon before we go into a spiritual phenomenon. Because a lot of the times, it could just be something very normal. Right, right. However, once they arrive, Ed stops in the front door. He feels as if something is trying to push him back, not wanting him to enter. He later would be quoted saying, Right away, I knew there was something to this. I felt like a good fisherman when he knows there's something on the line. End quote. It also doesn't take long for Lorraine, after entering, to know that there is something dark in this home. David, Lorraine, and Ed all meet up with one another. At first, David acts like any other 11-year-old does. He's playing or just simply asking questions. That is until he begins to be more pressed by the Warrens about what happened the first time he had come to the home. David again starts to mutter and growl at the Warrens, telling them, The boy is mine. Lorraine will ask, How many are you? David would tell her, We are 43. See, that's creepy right there. Yeah, even reading that, I could feel like (laughs) the chills down my spine, and this is why I had such a hard time like reading this. Now, the real quote is, we are 43 and a devil. And you and I had talked about this, and if any of you have seen the show Sabrina, there's like the arch demons, and I think what they were dealing with was a king demon who had a legion of 43 that are attacking David, and I think that arch demon is presenting itself as the burnt man goat thing. Later that night, Ed and Lorraine tell Judy they are willing to perform a ritual exorcism on David with her permission. Relieved, Judy quickly tells them, yes. Well, yeah, of course you are. Like, <laughs> Hell you, yeah. You've wanted anybody to come out and help your child, and these are the first people that are literally willing to help your child. You're not going to stop them at that point. You're going to tell them yes. I mean, I'm picturing Judy just exhausted. She's just sitting there loading her revolver. The Warrens are like, we can try this. And she's like, oh, okay. Well, we'll hold off on mine. Right. We don't need to. Yeah. Because, like, the next step was murder, suicide. And I'm like chicken out at the suicide part. <laughs> right. Deborah's slowly backing out the door with Arnie. Again, <laughs> go this way, mom. So over the course of the week, a total of four exorcisms are performed on David. At each of them, the Warrens, Glatzels, and Johnson are all present. At the night of the last one, however, before anyone can stop Arnie Johnson from saying the words, he looks at David and yells, Take me on. Leave my little buddy alone. Man, that sounds like some self-sacrifice right there. Right, like why? Dude, you know there's something real weird going on with him. (laughs) Why are you asking something to take you on? When the church has decided, like, hey, uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh. First, he moves into the strange act noises. Right. (laughs) I don't want to say Arnie might be the blonde girl in the movie, but Arnie, are you the blonde girl in the movie? Look more and more like it every time. Was he slowly putting on his high heels (laughs) and being like, I'm just going to go upstairs, guys. It's going to be okay. (laughs) Right. After that night, David does start to get better in the coming days. Judy, now having fixed the rental and found a new home to live, has decided it's time for her and David to leave. She tells her daughter, Deborah, that her and Arnie are more than welcome to continue to live there if they want to. As for David and herself, they are going to leave. However, Deborah has no intention on staying. She just can't get that last exorcism out of her head. She's even having a hard time convincing herself that she didn't see Arnie's eyes change dark when he yelled at David that night. 
It was like something had gone from David and jumped right into Arnie. Oh, so Deborah's seen the red flags. Yeah. <laughs> and I think Deborah at this point thinks that maybe it's the house because there was there was that threat of if you move into the house and yada yada yada. So I think in her mind she thinks, well, if me and Arnie get out, it won't affect Arnie anymore. Because I don't think she understands possession takes over the body. It doesn't just stay in the home. Right, right. In different faiths, there's the belief that like your home can be possessed or an object can be possessed. But those will stay there because they don't move. But if you, the person, are possessed, I don't think she realizes like it doesn't just leave his body <laughs> when he walks out the door. Right. You come home and you punch in, all right, possessed time. Oh, we're going back to my, my exorcism cards. Just here for my exorcism. And in this case, it's here for my possession. <laughs> Man, it's been a long eight hours. I think I'm time to clock out. And the little demon's like, no, <laughs> right. you have to stay extra two hours. Overtime. Overtime, mandatory two hours. <laughs> That's how I felt every time I was told about mandatory overtime. Right. <laughs> You not get out. We own you. <laughs> All of you listeners that work over where I used to work, you'll understand that. Probably get a good laugh. <laughs> so now in the fall of 1980, everyone has left the rental. Deborah and Arnie, while out looking for a new place to live, run into 40-year-old Alan Bono, who not only offers a job to Deborah at the kennels he owns, he also tells her he is willing to rent out an apartment to them. Excited about the opportunity... Deborah and Arnie both agree, and over time, Alan isn't just a landlord or a boss, even if Deborah has found she is doing most of the work, but he has also become a friend to them. Yeah, and Deborah had talked about Alan doesn't really know much about running the kennels, but she loved animals and she knew a lot about it. And <laughs> so Alan really depends on her a lot to do all of like the upkeep and things like that with the dogs or just running the kennel in general. And they even had made jokes about, like, opening their own pet store at some point. But that was more so, like, when they were just shooting the shit. From from all the dogs Deborah was bringing home after work? Oh, my God. See, <laughs> this is why you can never work at a kennel, because Hell I would come no. home to a million puppies. I'd be covered in puppies. I'd be like, so, look at me! So many puppy nipples <laughs> just everywhere. <laughs> Arnie hasn't felt like himself in days, though. He feels like he is quickly becoming more irritated with most things in life. He even finds himself thinking he sees the beast that David was talking about. After leaving work at the local tree trimmers one day, Arnie looks into the mirror and he swears he saw him, which causes him to drive off the road and hit a tree. Even though he isn't harmed by this accident, he is shaken. Is what happened to David starting to happen to him? Jeez, yeah. So now he's, the demon's just trying to kill him in the car. Yeah, and the whole family starts to refer to the burnt man as the beast. I had such a hard time like being like, oh, it's not the beast from Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. It's a fucking beast. Right. I feel bad for Arnie that, you know, if something is going on, if this really is what's happening to him, could you imagine like you're just trying to do your own thing and you were trying right. to protect a... Your girlfriend's brother. Like, I don't think I've ever liked somebody enough to be like, I'm going to go protect your family member <laughs> when we were first dating. But like, you and you marry now, I would say your family, I would try to protect to a certain extent. I'm from afar. But I would like all of you to know, I don't know anybody that I'm really willing to get possessed over. I don't want to be possessed. Whatever you did to get possessed, that kind of feels like that might be a you issue. Right, right. So now fast forwarding a little. By February 16th, 1981, 
Arnie feels like he just needs a break from work. Amen. Right. So, he invites his two younger sisters over, Wanda and Janice, and Deborah even asks her cousin Mary to come hang out with them. Alan, knowing that Arnie was having a hard time, came over to have a drink with them. After a little bit of time and drinks, Alan and Arnie start to talk about a radio that Arnie has fixed for Alan. He wants Alan to pay him so he can take all of the girls out to dinner. However, Alan tells Arnie he isn't going to be paying the amount that Arnie had originally asked for. This starts to cause each of them to grow more and more aggravated, to the point that they are now just yelling at one another in front of everyone. Awkward. Yeah, we've all been there. We've either been that person causing the fight or we've (laughs) seen the fight. Right. This is when Deborah tells Alan it's getting late, and before feelings can get hurt, maybe it would be better if he went home and slept it off for the night. Everyone could talk about it in the morning when people were not so drunk, trying to defuse the situation. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's always a good thing. Like, if everybody's drinking heavily, people are arguing, somebody just needs, you know, everybody go to bed. Right, right. Like, sleep it off, we will talk about it in the morning when, not, when everybody just isn't so drunk. Right. But this is when Alan grabs nine-year-old Mary, unwilling to let her go. Arnie confronts Alan and tells him to let her go. Right. No grown-ass man should be grabbing at a nine-year-old girl. No, never. And this is where there starts to get to be a little bit of confusion on what actually happened from everybody's perspective. One person said, well, I didn't see him grab her. But the, the other three said, no, he did. And the person that was grabbed said, yes, he did. But the other ones were like, no. You know, so there's just, there's a lot of weird shit that's about ready to all happen. <laughs> right, right. This is when Wanda Johnson hears Arnie start growling like an animal. He reaches into his pocket and pulls out a knife and starts to stab Alan five times, both to the chest and the torso, causing Alan to drop to the ground. As quickly as it happened, it's done. Artie turns from Alan's body and with a blank stare just starts walking out of the house into the woods, staring straight ahead, leaving a stunned family and now dying Alan on the floor. Alan would later end up passing away from his wounds and Arnie is later found sitting at Hackney's Bar by police chief John Anderson that is over two miles away. Oh, that's a long walk. Yeah, and they found him within an hour or two. Sure, sure. You kind of, I feel like, have to be walking kind of quick to get at least a mile in. But when they find him at the bar, he's just very stoic, I guess. And he's not drinking, he's not doing anything. He's just sitting there. Just chilling. Yeah. Which this will then bring us into my favorite time, the trial time. Trial time! Love me some trial time. All right, let's get into that exciting trial. The main reason we're here for Devil Made Me Do It. Right. We've been leading up to this for this long. (laughs) Defense attorney Martin Manella has decided he is going to put the devil on trial. After listening to Arnie Johnson's testimony and looking at the crime scene photos, Martin has come to believe that demonic possession was the case due to the deep wounds in Bono's body that could not have been made by humans. He just needs a judge that is willing to accept his plea of demonic possession. Unfortunately for Martin, Judge Robert Callahan refuses to accept this plea, saying it would be both irrelevant and unscientific to allow this type of plea in the court. Martin does try and argue that two cases in British court had been permitted a defense of demonic possession, 
Still, Judge Roberts stood to his decision, and the trial was going to be underway. So Martin was wanting to go with this just based on not just like what happened that night, but over the course of what happened to David yes. and what happened with like the Warrens involved in yes. the exorcism. Yes. And just over the whole course, not just that night of, oh, we got drunk and someone got stab happy. Right. And then he sees these photos of Alan Bono's body and he realizes that Arnie has stabbed Alan with a pocket knife. But the wounds are so deep and so large that they look like if Arnie had like put his whole fist into Alan's body. Like, it was almost superhuman strength of what he was doing. Right, and I'm sure the people that are listening do have some sort of familiarity with, like, knife murders. Right. That is so hard to do because blood gets all up on your hand, and then your hand slips, and that's why you normally end up with cuts on your hands. Right, then you're also not leaving fist-like wounds. Right, puncture wounds. Into somebody when you're doing that. Right. And again, it was a pocket knife. Pocket knives are tiny. It explained that it was like a very small pocket knife. It was not like a hunting pocket knife, anything like that. It was a very like, almost like your little woodcarver pocket knife. So over the next month, the media has started to go insane with following the case of Arnie Johnson. Even more so when Lorraine has now come back to defend Arnie, not only the court, but also to the media. Kudos to the Warrens for coming back and right, being like... Because they were so involved for that week. You know, they had gotten involved with the Gladstone family and with and they knew Arnie. And they just knew something wasn't right because this wasn't the Arnie that they had met during that time. Right, right. And this is when Martin comes forward to tell the media the most truthful statement ever. Yeah. The courts have dealt with the existence of God. Now they're going to have to deal with the existence of the devil. Which, that is so true. Right. We we have people swear on a Bible. We say, do you tell the whole truth? Nothing but the truth will help you, God. Right. I know that some courts don't do that all anymore. But we have always pushed, like, there's the existence of God, and you have to be truthful in the eyes of God. But if there's God, which I believe there is, there is also a Satan or a devil. There right. Is a, or why can't there be? Like, right. You can't. It's one without the other. You, you have them both. Right. The court can't just turn a blind eye to it and say, well, no, it doesn't ever happen. Well, if God is in existence and we want to use that, then we also have to allow the defense to be, the devil made me do it. Right. So even though Martin and the Warrens felt they have won people over to the idea of demonic possession being the reason for what Arnie did. The jury simply just isn't buying it. After Three days of deliberation, the jury convicts Arnie Johnson of first-degree murder. Boo, jury. Right. He is sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison. However, in 1986, in a shock to the nation, Arnie Johnson is released. When asked by the media why he had only served a five-year sentence, the courts responded by saying Arnie had been a good inmate and showed exemplary behavior. I kind of feel like the court like, went back and looked at things mm-hmm. and was like, oh, this judge was wrong for not allowing this defense to be done or things like that. Because during the time, there there is times where, like, the prosecution does have a hard time dismissing some of the accusations put against, where the defense is putting up, like, really good defenses on things and the prosecution is having a hard time shooting them down. Right. Because there's just, there's not good logical evidence to explain why things that have happened have happened outside of the local police officer being like, well, I just think it's people that got drunk and they got into a fight. Right, right. 
you know, and so they stabbed each other. And I feel like the jury kind of does this whole reasoning of like, we have to separate. Oh, and it's very easily believable. Right. People got drunk and they got into a fight. Yep. Happens all the time. But, you know, and it is harder to believe like, oh, he was possessed. But when you start to hear the surmounting evidence and now you have the world famous Warrens, because they are world famous at this point, coming to the media in defense and even into the court in defense of Arnie, then I think to them, they're like, well, was he? So Arnie Johnson and Deborah Glatzel would later go on to get married and have two kids. Which I was really happy about. She stuck with oh him through goodness. all of that. Super, super wife right there. Right. That's, that's, uh, I feel like that takes some gusto to stick around after a murder conviction. Right. <laughs> they never changed their story. And until Deborah passed away, said that Arnie and David have both been possessed by the quote-unquote beast. When he was older, David also never changed his story from what he had been telling during the trial. David believed he had been possessed and that the possession had moved from him to Arnie. And that is what caused Arnie to kill Alan that night. Yeah, unfortunately, Deborah does. I think it said in 2011, Deborah passed away from cancer. But she stayed with him that whole time. And there was only one person in the Gladsell family that ever said the whole thing was fake. And that was the youngest child, Carl, the youngest Gladsell child. That's why I don't bring him up in this. Because anytime I look for information, he's like removed from everything. I don't know if that was because of legal reasons or what. But Carl, you kind of sounded like a dick when I did find any information about you. That maybe you're mad <laughs> that like you didn't make money off of the he story. He kind of sounds like a jelly monster. He yeah, wasn't going to touch the, the Glatzels did not make money off of this. If anything, it kind of put them into, like, hiding. But then when the movie was getting made, they wanted to pay David money for parts of his story and Arnie Johnson for parts of his story, which I did not see. I can't confirm or deny, but it looked more like David and Arnie had not actually accepted any money for it. They were just there to tell, like, their actual story. Make sure that it's being portrayed correctly. Right. Well, at least try as to. correct as it could be. Right. But Carl seems to have been up in arms and pissed off because he wasn't paid for his story and what did David and his mom do and Deborah did this and blah, 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 blah. It just sounded like he was trying to like victimize himself for something that he was never the actual victim of instead of just being supportive to his brother and mom during what they believe to be such a horrible time. Right, right. That, that's the end of this. You know, Duh, they, and- yeah, there you go, colors. What do you guys think? Did demonic possession affecting David pass on to Arnie? Or was it just a really good reason for Arnie to use it to kill Alan? Write in and let us know. All right, Keith. So for the final time of the season, what do you think? Okay, so this is going to be the first time this whole season that I am going to say I believe it was demonic possession. You got more for that? Or are you just going with it was demonic possession? No, I okay, so I, I believe it was demonic possession for a few things. Number one, David is starting to speak in a foreign language. That's very odd, an 11-year-old speaking Latin, especially when it's not something he should know. Number two, his mom, Deborah, and Arnie have all witnessed the beast. And then you go into when Lorraine Warren is questioning him about it, and he starts to get so defensive and says, we are 43 and a devil. That really starts to sell it to me that maybe, just maybe, they really are dealing with some sort of possession here. 
And then because it's just such a sudden shift in Arnie Johnson's behavior after that initial encounter, like that last night encounter, I guess not initial encounter, that last night encounter with the whole exorcism that all of a sudden now he's becoming more aggressive with things and he's just more irritated about things. Deborah, Deborah even talks about it at one point and she says, he never tried to hit me. He was never aggressive like towards me. Some other people had tried to discredit her and say, yes, he was, but she said, no, he literally was never mean to her or he had not been abusive to her. And I feel like if he had been, she would have had a way out in that five-year period when he was in prison and she wouldn't have stuck around if the testimony that other people tried to give about him being just this mean person to her was so true. Right, right. And the fact that Judy's story never changes from person to person to person. It doesn't sound rehearsed to anybody. It just sounds like she is just telling them an issue. And that the rest of the family, their story doesn't change. What You know, like, it comes from their perspective. And each person has a different perspective on things of, like, what they saw or what happened to them. But the generalization of the story is always, something was wrong with David. We believed he was possessed. We all saw the beast at some point. And then something was really wrong with Arnie after the exorcism. Okay, okay. What about you? All right, so, you know, me being the skeptic. You are the biggest skeptic. Having to find flaw in fucking everything. Mm-hmm. A lot of the season is, is mental health, multi-personality, schizophrenia. Right. Like, I tried to, to justify it in that sense, but... From David acting this way, and then Arnie throwing down the gauntlet to a demon person. Right, Mr. Beastie Beast face. Arnie wasn't showing symptoms of any of that stuff prior to that, and he was always like a happy-go-lucky guy. Right, I mean, he's willing enough to go jump up into the attic to go try to calm the family down, to make them not believe that, you know, to kind of, if there was like a hysteria starting to happen, to try to calm that hysteria down. Right, and... I believe just for those facts alone, since there wasn't the symptoms of a, a mental health thing in Arnie Pryor, that I actually do believe, for the first time this season, truly demon possession. That is, okay, like, that's kind of crazy to me. I never thought that those words <laughs> would ever cross your lips. I, me neither. Like, hey, I really think that this person may have been possessed. It's hard to justify a sliver of anything. Yeah, it, there is not a lot of, like, leaning into the, like, oh, maybe it could have been this. There's just a lot of, these are the facts, and this is what happened, and this is how it happened, and bada-bing, bada-boom, it was a demon. <laughs> and that's how we do it here at Call Us When You're Dead. We give you those facts. Right. We tell you how it happened, or from our research of how it happened. Right. And can't can't To at least it. the best of our ability right, and right. You know, our knowledge at the time, and so... I'm sure that 30 years down the road, we're going to hear somebody say, you said back in season two. And we'll uh, say, shut your fucking mouth. And then I'm going to have to say, uh, which one of the survivors are we talking about? And what did they do? <laughs> right. You know, so we are always trying to bring you the best information. There can always be things that change at some point. And I'm not saying that, like, we've had that issue because we haven't. But five years down the road, if something else comes out about this case. Right. Who knows? Yeah, We just don't ever know. However, with that said, Ryan and I did talk about suicide, and we talked about mental health issues, stuff like that. So, for you, if you or anybody that you know is suffering from a mental health crisis or are having thoughts of suicide, please contact 988. There's always a trained professional sitting there waiting to help anybody that you or somebody that you know may need. Once again, that number is 988. 
But thank you guys again so much for tuning in this season. I cannot wait to start next season. I'm really excited about that. <sighs> Me too. Uh, we will. We're not giving you guys the title right now. You're but, just gonna have to check it out once season five starts. Yeah, we will tell you guys though that it is dealing with either a murder that helped inspire a movie, or because of a movie, people committed a murder. The person was inspired by the movie. Right, or <laughs> TV show, or something to that effect. Yeah. Until then, don't forget to follow us on the socials, facebook.com slash callusdead. You can follow us on TikTok at callusdead, where you can see some videos of ourselves, or better yet, our cat Jakars, our little baby sugar Gladys, Emma and Regina, or our perfect pooches, Lola and Bailey. Or you can email us at callusdead at yahoo.com to tell us what you thought about the case. Ask some questions, suggest some cases or seasons, and don't forget, if you want to do special shoutouts, shoot us a message. Yeah. But until then, remember to stay strong, do everything with love, know there is always hope. And if you forget, you can always call us when you're dead. Maybe she just mm, arch demon or arch de- like like <laughs> David and Arnie both agree. David, you mean Deborah? Oh yeah. <laughs> Excited about the opportunity, Deborah. <clears throat> fuck. Okay, one more time. Glad <laughs> <laughs> we caught that. Perfect time. <laughs> Every fucking time he always does this to me. <laughs> you guys don't understand. Like he won't tell me, "Hey, we're getting ready to record again," and I'll like get ready to like breathe it all in. You know, it just gets stuffy in here. And <laughs> he's over there just like ha ha ha, record, <laughs> just as I get to do it. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>